0: The opinions expressed in this episode do not necessarily reflect those of The Murderish Podcast. Sensitive topics are discussed. Listener discretion is advised. Hey Ishers, it's Jamie. Thank you for joining me on another episode of Murderish. This episode is brought to you by Mott & Bo and, and HelloFresh. The case discussed in this episode was suggested by Tracy, who's been a loyal listener and a great supporter of the show for quite a while. Thank you, Tracy. Before we get into the episode, I want to say a big thank you to Rachel for becoming a Patreon supporter. Lastly, I want to warn you that this case is particularly heinous and may offend or trigger some listeners. In December of 2000, two quadruple murders occurred in the city of Wichita, Kansas. This episode of Murderish covers what is widely known as the Wichita Massacre. Wichita, Kansas is the largest city in the state. The city is part of Sedgwick County, located in the south central part of Kansas, along the Arkansas River, approximately 200 miles southwest of Kansas City. Wichita was incorporated in 1870 after becoming a trading post in 1868. Wyatt Earp, the legendary lawman, worked as a police officer in Wichita in the mid-1870s before leaving for Dodge City, Kansas, and later, Tombstone, Arizona. Wichita is known as the air capital of the world due to many aircraft facilities located there, such as Beechcraft, Cessna, Learjet, and Airbus. Boeing also built a plant in the Wichita area in the 1930s and was one of the city's largest employers until 2014 when the plant relocated. The city is home to Wichita State University, Newman University, and Friends University. The city's main newspaper, the Wichita Eagle, has been publishing its paper since 1872. Fast food chains White Castle and Pizza Hut both originated in Wichita. The crime rate in Wichita is surprisingly high. The overall annual crime rate in Wichita is 104% higher compared to the average city in Kansas. It's also 139% higher compared to the national average. Violent crimes are particularly high in Wichita, being 148% higher on average than other cities in Kansas, and 167% higher than the national average. A Wall Street Journal article from May 8, 2019, citing 2016 statistics, ranked Wichita as the 16th most dangerous city in the U.S. The most notorious criminal from Wichita is Dennis Rader the serial killer known as BTK, for Bind, Torture, Kill. Raider murdered 10 people in Wichita from 1974 to 1991. He's currently incarcerated at the El Dorado Correctional Facility in El Dorado, Kansas. In December of 2000, former Chilean dictator Augusto Pinochet was arrested. After an investigation, the U.S. Navy determined that the captain and crew of the USS Cole failed to observe proper security procedures two months prior in Yemen, although this attack would later be attributed to Al-Qaeda. Also in December of 2000, the space shuttle Endeavor returned to Earth with its crew. Pop superstar Madonna married Guy Ritchie. The song Independent Woman Part 1 by Destiny's Child was the number one song in the U.S. The movies Cast Away, What Women Want, and Crouching Tiger Hidden Dragon were released and would become the three top-grossing movies for the month. Also in December of 2000, four people between the ages of 17 and 20 were murdered by 19-year-old Cornelius Oliver, who had been dating one of the victims. Oliver was caught the same day at his brother's house, and he was eventually convicted and sentenced to life with no chance of parole until 2140. As rare as quadruple homicides are, Two quadruple murders in the same town would seem almost inconceivable. However, on December 14, 2000, the unthinkable happened. Only seven days after the first quadruple homicide, a second would take place. This crime, known as the Wichita Massacre, would become one of the most infamous crimes in the history of Kansas, along with the BTK murders and the slaughter of the Clutter family in Holcomb, Kansas in 1959, which was the subject of Truman Capote's best-selling book, In Cold Blood. Reginald Dexter Carr Sr. and Janice Harding were teenagers in 1974, just 17 and 16 years old when their first child, a daughter named Tamika, was born in Cleveland, Ohio. They didn't get married until Janice turned 18, because her mother would not give permission. The couple would go on to have three more children, Reginald Jr. born in 1977, Regina born in 1979, and Jonathan born in 1980. Reginald Sr. worked as a chemist in a Cleveland factory, while Janice stayed home with their four children. Things seemed to be going well for the family, but in 1981, tragedy struck. Two-year-old Regina was diagnosed with leukemia and died just a year later. The devastating loss of Regina would soon tear apart the Carr family. Reginald Sr. began drinking heavily. He and Janice argued constantly. The arguments became physical when Reginald Sr. smacked Janice. She responded by picking up a baseball bat and telling her husband he was never going to hit her again. Tamika would later claim that her father used to beat her mother, at times using a stick. Other reports were that Reginald Sr. had thrown a brick at Janice, and that Janice struck her husband with a baseball bat. There were stories in the neighborhood about affairs going on by the parents, and of sexual abuse and incest involving the entire family. A female cousin said Reginald Sr. had sexually abused her. There were reports that Reginald Sr. brought a young girl around Reginald Jr.'s age for both boys to have sex with. Janice blamed the young girl for this, claiming she was promiscuous. Janice's niece said that Reginald Jr. had sexual contact with her when she was seven. Reginald Jr. would have been around nine years old at the time. Tamika said that she was sexually abused by her father, Reginald Sr. Janice had become somewhat of an absent mother, often disappearing from the home, sometimes leaving her children home alone with nobody to look after them. She would often stay away for days, not telling anyone in her family where she was. Janice denied having affairs, saying she left so often because she just wanted to get away from Reginald Sr. A relative said that Janice would return from her disappearances with, quote, incredible stories about how she had been ill or had been in the hospital, even though the family had seen her at nightclubs, coming out of nightclubs, during the time she was reporting to them that she had been in the hospital. One day in 1986, while her husband was at work, Janice packed up her four children and moved to her mother's house. She and Reginald Sr. would divorce later that year. Reginald Sr. remarried within a few months. He and his new wife began their own family and would later move to California. Janice and her children moved constantly around the Cleveland area. Her sons attended eight schools in eight years. Around this time, Janice began seeing another man named Rick Austin. She would eventually marry Austin. Austin was also abusive, even pointing a gun at Janice's head at one point. The boys were constantly fighting each other and getting into trouble. Reginald Jr. had a BB lodged under his scalp after being shot by Jonathan. Reginald also exhibited behavioral problems. He had allegedly had his first sexual experience with a girl when he was just six years old. He began drinking by the time he was 11. Janice used corporal punishment on her children as a discipline measure. According to Tamika, she whipped them with belts, extension cords, and shoes. When one of the children was going to be beaten, they had to choose the belt Janice would use. Tamika said the children had to lie down on the floor in their underwear while the other two children held their arms and legs down. Their cousin, Barbara, said that she had been beaten by Janice using belts, spoons, and electrical cords. Another cousin claimed that Janice and Austin did drugs in their bedroom. The sexual abuse continued after Reginald Sr. and Janice split up. An aunt said both Reginald Jr. and Jonathan had admitted to her that one of Janice's boyfriends had abused them. Tamika said that her brothers were forced to commit sexual acts with her mother's boyfriends. The family eventually found another place to stay. Tamika said that after the divorce, her mother began to disappear more often, leaving her and her brothers at home to fend for themselves. She said that Janice eventually began staying with her boyfriend, Rick Austin, whom she would eventually marry. Austin lived with his parents at the time. Tamika said that after being gone for days, when her mother finally returned home, she would shut herself in her bedroom only coming out to get meals for herself and for Austin. Two of Jonathan's friends claimed they had sold crack to Janice. Tamika said she and her two brothers were, quote, shipped off at different times to live with family. Tamika attended fifth and sixth grades in California, where she stayed with her aunt. Reginald Jr. was sent to West Virginia for a while. Tamika said she got a job while she was in high school and used the money she earned to buy clothes and other necessities for her and her brothers. She said she prepared the meals and would even go to conferences at school for Jonathan, who had a learning disability. Tamika said she once told Janice that she didn't think her mother loved them anymore. Janice's response was to beat Tamika. The next year, a girl at Jonathan's school accused him and several other boys of rape. The accusation spread throughout the community and seven-year-old Jonathan became a pariah. It was determined later that the girl had made the story up, and it turned out a relative had been the one who had assaulted her and her sister. But the stories and teasing didn't stop for Jonathan. He was referred to as one of the, quote, Harry Rice rapists. Harry Rice was the name of the elementary school he attended. It got so bad for Jonathan that he tried to hang himself, not knowing what else to do, Janice sent him to live with her sister Phyllis in Texas. Reginald Jr. would soon join his brother in Brownsville, Texas. The boys loved living with their aunt, who had moved to Texas to work as a pediatrician. Eventually, they had to return to Cleveland to live with their mother. In Tamika's senior year of high school, Janice decided to move again, this time out of state. Her sister Phyllis had moved to Dodge City, Kansas to open a pediatrics practice. Janice moved to join her sister in Kansas, thinking it would be a good place to raise her kids. Although Tamika said she thought it was because Austin was wanted by the police. Tamika didn't want to move again. She wanted to graduate with her friends. She said that Janice left her to stay, quote, with some guy named Patrick, who Tamika had never even met before. In Dodge City, Reginald had problems getting into fights and skipping school. He threatened several teachers and sexually harassed at least one. Finally, after being suspended repeatedly and in danger of being expelled, he dropped out. Reginald began taking GED classes and graduated very high in the program. He even began to take classes at a local community college. At this same time, he was in trouble with the law. Local police knew that he had been dealing drugs, but were never able to catch him in the act. When Reginald was 16 years old, Janice kicked him out of the house because of his behavior. Not long after being kicked out of the house, Reginald's first son was born. Reginald was 17 years old when he became a father. In 1995, while taking classes at Dodge City Community College, he was caught for robbing the school bookstore. He got away with $500 while wearing a Michael Myers mask from the 1978 film Halloween. He was convicted of aggravated assault and theft, but was only given probation. Reginald continued to get into trouble. He continued selling drugs, and routine urine tests for his probation showed that he was using drugs. In September of 1996, he was convicted of possession of a controlled substance, methamphetamine, and sent to the Norton Correctional Facility. His second son, from a different woman, was born in December of 1996, two months after he began his sentence. He and the boy's mother, Mandy, got married in May of 1997. When Reginald was sent to prison, Jonathan began having problems. He and Reginald were very close and he looked up to his older brother. In addition to his brother's incarceration, he had just been dumped by his girlfriend and the family dog, whom Jonathan loved, had recently died from drinking antifreeze. Overwhelmed by grief, Jonathan attempted suicide by drinking antifreeze. Soon after his failed suicide attempt, Jonathan began getting into trouble with the law. Jonathan was put on parole, during which time, he and a friend stole a truck to go for a joyride, although he was never caught for that offense. On one occasion, Jonathan told his probation officer that he would stab her in the neck with a pencil. While Reginald was still in prison, Jonathan moved back to Cleveland. His girlfriend's father got him a job working at a steel factory. For a while, they worked the same shift, and Jonathan did well at his job. However, Jonathan was later moved to a second shift, where he began showing up late. He was eventually fired. He was also arrested for robbing a convenience store, but he was never charged. Jonathan decided to go back to Dodge City, where his brother was about to be released. Reginald's year of incarceration did nothing to rehabilitate him. He had numerous run-ins with authorities while behind bars. He got into fights and exposed himself to female officers. When he was released in March of 2000, he decided he wanted to go by the nickname Smoke. Reginald moved in with his wife, Mandy, and their son. Mandy soon got pregnant and gave birth to a daughter in April of 2001. While Mandy worked to support them, Reginald was unemployed. The couple began to argue, and by August, their relationship was over. In October of 2000, Reginald began dating a woman named Stephanie Donnelly, a nurse who was planning to move to Wichita, Kansas. Reginald decided to move there as well. He was still on parole, but that didn't stop him from getting into trouble. Reginald was arrested for DWI a month after he moved to Wichita with Stephanie. He posted Bond, but was arrested again that same month for forgery and violation of his parole. However, the parole violation was dropped due to a clerical error that ended his parole on December 1st of 2000, instead of the correct date, which was June 1st of 2001. At this time, a new law that reduced parole for nonviolent offenders also came into play. On December 5th, Reginald posted Bond for his forgery charge And decided to go to Wichita to be with Stephanie. Jonathan went along with him. On Thursday, December seventh of two thousand, only two days after arriving in Wichita, the Carr brothers began a reign of terror that would leave a permanent mark on the Midwestern city. Andrew Schreiber was born on August fourth of nineteen seventy-seven. In December of two thousand, he was a baseball coach at Newman University. He previously played baseball at Wichita State University. On December 7th, Andrew stopped at a convenience store around 10.45pm. After he was done, he went back to his Ford Expedition and got in. Suddenly, he was confronted by a man with a handgun. The man ordered Andrew into the passenger seat. As he started to move, Andrew was hit in the back of the head with a gun and told to move faster. The gunman got into the car and started to drive. The gunman was later identified as Reginald Carr, the oldest of the Carr brothers. Reginald asked Andrew if he had any money. Andrew gave him his wallet. A moment later, Reginald turned Andrew's SUV into an alley and stopped the vehicle. Another man approached the car with a gun. Andrew was ordered to get into the back seat. As he did so, the second gunman, presumably Jonathan Carr, hit Andrew in the head with his gun, telling him not to look at him. Andrew never got a good look at the second gunman. The men ordered Andrew to hand over his ATM card, stating that anyone who drove a vehicle like this had to have money. When Andrew told the men that he did, Reginald pulled up to an ATM and told Andrew to make a withdrawal. Andrew withdrew $300, the maximum amount allowed, and gave the money and receipt to Jonathan, who held a gun on Andrew the entire time. The two men looked at Andrew's account balance on the receipt, then drove to another ATM, where Andrew was told to withdraw another $300. They drove to a third ATM, and Andrew was told again to withdraw $300. When the men saw that he did not have $300 left in his account, he was told to withdraw $200, which he did. Jonathan laughingly told Andrew they were going to leave him with $8. Reginald then drove the expedition onto Kansas Highway 96. The men told Andrew to give them his jewelry. Andrew handed over his watch and was hit in the head yet again by Jonathan's gun. As they drove into the country, the two gunmen began talking about what they were going to do with Andrew. They discussed dropping him off and letting him walk back to town. Reginald said he liked Andrew's expedition and wanted one for himself. Apparently, Not finding a place in the country to drop Andrew off, the men headed back into Wichita, stopping near a car wash. Andrew was told to lie face down on the floor. After a few minutes, the vehicle stopped and Jonathan got out. At this time, Andrew heard another vehicle start up. Reginald pulled the expedition back onto the road and drove for a few more minutes. He pulled over again, got out of the car, and began wiping down Andrew's SUV. Reginald went to talk to Jonathan, who had been following them in another vehicle. Andrew then heard three gunshots. Reginald told Andrew, who was still lying face down on the floor, to wait 20 minutes before getting up. Once Andrew thought it was safe to get out of the vehicle, he searched around and found his keys, which Reginald told him he would leave for him on the road. He looked around his vehicle and saw that one tire had three gunshots in it. He was able to drive to his home and immediately called 911. He told police that the first gunman was a black male, probably in his 20s, and about 5'9 or 5'10 inches tall, and had a medium build. He said he was wearing jeans, a long-sleeved shirt, and a beanie or a cap. Andrew said the second gunman was taller than the first one and was wearing a heavy coat. Linda Ann Walenta, who went by Ann, was born on January 15, 1945. She attended Wichita State University where she received her bachelor's degree in music education and her master's degree in music. After graduate school, Anne taught in public schools for a while and gave private cello lessons to earn extra money. In December of 2000, Anne was a cellist in the Wichita Symphony and worked at Friends University as an instructor and librarian. Four days after the attack on Andrew Schreiber, around 9.30 p.m. on December 11th, Anne was driving home from practice at the Wichita Symphony when she noticed she was being followed. Anne pulled up to her house and saw the other car stop in front of her neighbor's house. A young black male, later identified as Reginald Carr, got out of the vehicle and came up to the driver's side of Anne's GMC Yukon, saying that he needed help. When Anne rolled her window down partway, the man pulled a gun and told her not to move. Anne's vehicle was still running, and she shifted into reverse. Before she could pull away, the man shot her and then ran away. Anna Kelly, Anne's neighbor across the street, heard a car horn. She looked out the window and saw the Yukon's lights flashing. She opened her front door and heard Anne calling for help. Anna ran over to help Anne while her husband called 911. When she got to Anne, she saw that the driver's side window had been shattered. Anne told Anna that she had been shot by a black male in his 30s with wiry hair and a medium build. Anne had been shot three times, one bullet severing her spinal cord, paralyzing her. In the hospital, she went through surgery and began to recover. After a couple of weeks, the doctors decided Anne was well enough to be transferred to a rehab facility, but the day she was to be transferred, Anne suffered a pulmonary embolism. She died on January 2nd, 2001. With Wichita reeling from these violent attacks, things were about to get much worse. Ishers, I'm a huge fan of meals that are fast and easy to cook. Hello Fresh is a meal kit delivery service that I've recently started using and I'm loving it. In fact, I'm not sure why I waited so long to try it. HelloFresh meals are fast and easy and call for less than two pots and pans, which means less dishes. I'm exhausted by the time I come home from work, so I rely on HelloFresh to do all the meal planning, shopping, and prepping for me, so I have more time to spend with my family and more time to binge murder shows. You can choose from classic, veggie, and family meal options and switch whenever you want. If you want to knock out meals like a champ, HelloFresh even has cool features like dinner to lunch, 20-minute meals, and one-pot wonders. My favorite HelloFresh meal so far is the caramelized pineapple teriyaki burger. If you're ready to get out of the recipe rut and start enjoying the convenience of having meal kits delivered right to your door, I've got a great offer for you. For $80 off your first month of HelloFresh, go to hellofresh.com murderish80 and enter promo MURDERISH80. That's HelloFresh.com slash MURDERISH80 and enter promo MURDERISH80. Jason Wayne Beffert was born on October 31st of 1974 in Pratt, Kansas. He graduated from Kansas State University with a degree in secondary education. He got a job teaching science and coaching football and basketball at Augusta High School while working on his master's degree in sports administration. Brad Charles Haka was born on February 15, 1973, in Salina, Kansas. He grew up in Dodge City. He played two years on the golf team at Garden City Community College before transferring to Kansas State University, where he earned a degree in finance. He worked as the director of finance at Koch Industries. Aaron Daniel Sander was born in Liberal, Kansas on November 5 of 1971. He graduated from Cimarron High School, then went to St. Mary of the Plains College in Dodge City before transferring to Wichita State University, where he graduated with a degree in finance. He worked as a financial analyst for three years with Brad Heka at Koch Industries. He had recently quit his job to attend seminary and study for the priesthood. Jason, Brad, and Aaron lived together in a triplex in Wichita at 12727 East Birchwood Drive. Heather Suzanne Francis Mueller was born on September 21st of 1975. She graduated from Capon Mount Carmel High School in 1993 and attended Stevens College in Missouri to study music. She decided that she wanted to be a teacher and transferred to Wichita State University, graduating in 1998 with a degree in audiology. She worked at Rainbows United, a social services education agency in Wichita. She left the agency to return to college to pursue a master's degree in early childhood special education. While in graduate school, she taught preschool at St. Thomas Aquinas Catholic School. Heather had previously dated Aaron Sander, and the two remained very close. While Aaron had decided to become a priest, Heather was thinking about becoming a nun. Holly Glover was born on May 10th of 1975. In December of 2000, she was an elementary school teacher. She and Jason had been in a relationship for several years. Holly came over to the place where Jason lived with Brad and Aaron around 8.30 p.m. on the evening of Thursday, December 14th of 2000. She came over to have dinner and grade some of her students' papers. She brought her dog Nikki, a schnauzer, along with her. Heather came over to the home on Birchwood a while later. Jason, who had been at basketball practice, arrived home around 9 p.m. Holly and Jason stayed up for about an hour or so and then went to bed. Holly tied her hair back with a barrette before going to sleep. Around 11 p.m., the light on the back porch just outside Jason's bedroom window turned on. Holly said she could hear Aaron speaking with someone, but she couldn't hear the other voice and assumed Aaron was talking to Heather. A few seconds later, the bedroom door burst open. Holly looked up and saw a tall black male in the doorway. The man would later be identified as Jonathan Carr. Jonathan came over to the bed and ripped the covers off. Then Aaron came into the bedroom, accompanied by a second black male, who would later be identified as Reginald Carr. Nikki, the dog, was baring her teeth and began to growl at the intruders. One of the men told Holly, grab your dog or we'll shoot her. The men then asked if anyone else was in the house. When they found out that there were more people in the house, Jonathan stayed with Aaron, Jason, and Holly, and Reginald went downstairs to get the other two people. Holly said she heard Brad scream. A minute later, he was brought into the bedroom as well, and Reginald went back to get Heather. When all five were in the bedroom, they were told to get on the floor. Holly could see that both men had handguns with them. They told the five captives to get undressed. Once they had all complied, the men then wanted to know who had money. One of the gunmen demanded to know where the safe was because, quote, In a house this fucking nice, there had to be a safe somewhere. The captives said they didn't have money on them and that there was no safe in the house. Then they were asked who had ATM cards. All five raised their hands. The men asked each of them how much money they had in their bank accounts. Holly told them she had about $500. Jason said $300 to $400. Aaron said about $200. Heather about $200. And Brad around $1,500. The men pointed their guns at the two women and told them to go into the next room. They ordered the three men to get into the bedroom closet. When Heather and Holly got into the next room, Jonathan Carr told them to perform oral sex and digital penetration on each other. One of the men then told Holly, in a very vulgar fashion, what he wanted to do to Heather. The men watched the women for about 10 minutes. Heather was then taken back into the bedroom with the three men and one of the intruders brought Brad into the room. Brad was ordered to have sex with Holly. The men then took Brad back to the closet and brought Jason in. Jason was then ordered to have sex with Holly, but one of the men stopped them, realizing that Jason and Holly were a couple. Jason was taken out of the room, and one of the men returned a minute later with Aaron. Aaron began to fight, and one of the intruders hit him in the head with his gun. The men ordered Aaron and Holly to have sex. Then Holly was taken into the bedroom, and Heather was brought out. The men were telling Aaron to have sex with Heather. The men kept threatening to shoot Jason, Brad, and Aaron if they were unable to perform. The friends were ordered not to talk to each other or make any noises. Anytime one of them did make a sound, the intruders would yell at them. Holly could hear the men yelling at Aaron and hitting him with what was later to be determined a golf club. Aaron was brought back to the closet and Jason was taken into the room with Heather. Then Jason was returned to the closet and Brad was brought out and ordered to have sex with Heather. Holly heard one of them say, it's 1153, it's 1154, somebody better get their dick hard and get a hard on. A little while later, the men decided to take the victims one by one to ATMs to withdraw all the money they could. Reginald first took Brad to his bank while Jonathan stood guard at the house with the remaining four hostages. Holly was called back out into the next room by Jonathan, who ordered her to get down on all fours and quote, get yourself wet. Then Jonathan raped her. When Reginald came back with Brad, he took the others one by one to drain their bank accounts. Holly and Heather were given sweatshirts to wear when they went to the bank with Reginald, but the men had to remain naked. When Holly was taken to the bank, Reginald asked her what Jonathan had done to her. She said, quote, He forced me to have sex with him, and he just kind of laughed. Then he asked me if I liked it. I said yes, thinking that would appease him. He asked me if I'd ever been with a black man before, and I said no. He asked me if he was better than my boy. I said yes. He asked me if I liked being with a girl, and I said no. And he said, quote, Baby, that's all right. You ain't gotta lie to me. And then we just drove for a while. And then I asked him if he was going to shoot us, and he said no. And I said, you know you can have whatever you want. Please don't hurt us. I said, do you promise you're not going to shoot us or kill us? And he said, yeah. And we were coming up on the bank. Holly said that Reginald told her he wished they had met under different circumstances because he thought she was cute and that they would have hit it off. Holly said, quote, I said, yeah, me too. And he said, what the fuck does that mean? and I said, well, I'm not really having a good time. While Reginald transported Aaron to the bank, Jonathan looked around the house for money and other valuables. Holly said she heard him ask Heather what something he had found was, and Heather said, quote, it's probably Holly's, but she doesn't know about it. When Aaron was returned to the closet, Reginald took Holly out and brought her back out to the next room. Holly remembered that Reginald said something that scared her, and she jerked her body involuntarily. Reginald then said he wasn't going to shoot her, yet. He then raped Holly, making her swallow his semen when he ejaculated. Holly would later testify that she was raped, saying, quote, I walked in front of him, over to the bathroom. He opened the door. I saw the skinny guy raping Heather vaginally. She was on all fours. I started to open the door at the fatter guy's request, and the guy inside said, hold on, I'm not done. And then we stood there in the hallway for a minute, and then I opened the door again, and he directed me to come inside. He raped me vaginally. The gunman then brought out Jason, Brad, and Aaron from the closet. Holly could see that Jonathan was holding something in his hand. He showed the captives a diamond ring and asked which of the women was Holly. Jason looked at Holly and said, quote, That's for you. I was going to propose on Christmas Eve. The men then took the hostages outside. They tried to get all five of them into the trunk of Aaron's car, but it was too small, so they made Jason, Brad, and Aaron get in the trunk and close the lid. Holly said the men talked for a while and then opened the garage door. Jonathan ordered Heather to get into the passenger seat of Aaron's car, and Reginald told Holly to get into Jason's trunk. The women were both wearing sweaters, but the three men were still naked. The two vehicles began to drive away. Holly asked Reginald where they were going and he told her they wanted to drop off the five of them farther away from the house. They drove to a subdivision that was being developed and pulled over next to a soccer field. It was a little after 2 a.m. Holly was ordered into Aaron's car with Heather, while Brad, Jason, and Aaron were let out of the trunk and told to kneel in front of it. Holly said at that time she looked at Heather and said, quote, They're going to shoot us. Holly and Heather were ordered out of the car and told to kneel with their three friends. Holly went over to one side to kneel next to Jason. Heather went to the other side to kneel next to Aaron. Holly said she then heard a gunshot, and Aaron screamed, quote, Please no, sir, please. And then there was another shot. Holly said she believed by how the five friends were positioned that Heather was shot first, followed by Aaron, Brad, and Jason. Then Holly was shot in the back of the head but she remained conscious. She was kicked by one of the men and fell forward, pretending to be dead. One of the men got into Jason's truck and ran over all five of the victims. Holly said she didn't hear any conversation between the two men. They just drove off, leaving the five friends for dead. Holly remained motionless until she could no longer hear the vehicles of the two men. She looked up and saw the headlights of the vehicles in the distance. Once the headlights were out of sight, She rolled Jason over. He was still alive as blood was coming out of his body. Holly took her sweater off and tied it around his head to try to stop the bleeding. Holly checked Brad, Aaron, and Heather, but received no response. She decided she needed to get some help. She saw some lights off in the distance, barefoot and naked. She started running through a field toward a house. She said she saw three or four vehicles come by and each time she ducked and tried to disappear in the snow, thinking it might be the two gunmen coming back. She kept running, climbing over two fences, and finally reached the house. She rang the doorbell and then started pounding on the front door. A young woman opened the door, let her in, and gave her a blanket to cover up. They tried to get Holly to lie down, but believing she was going to die, she insisted on staying awake in order to tell them everything she could about what happened to them. While the wife listened to Holly, the husband called 911. The 911 call begins with Holly telling the operator, quote, They executed my four friends. They've all been shot in the head. Holly is gasping loudly while on the phone. And then she proceeds to tell the operator she's going to pass out. The homeowner tells the operator, quote, Well, we got a girl. We found her at our door. And she's naked and bleeding. She said her friends are all shot and had people break into her house. Holly is sobbing in the background, at which time the homeowner offers her a blanket. The homeowner tells the operator that Holly seems delirious. Holly is able to compose herself enough to describe the car in which the perpetrators drove off in. She describes it as a silver, two-door Honda Accord. Holly goes on to describe both perpetrators. She tells the operator that one of them is tall and skinny, about six feet tall, and said that he had hair like buckwheat. She described him as wearing an orange and black sweater and black jeans. Holly described the perpetrator as being very young, in his early 20s, and he was, quote, real lanky, real thin. Holly tells the operator she didn't see the other perpetrator and confirms that she had been raped, saying, quote, yes, I've been raped. DNA, you can check me. Holly then tells the operator that the perpetrators took turns raping her and the other girl and that they were driven to ATMs to withdraw money for the perpetrators. She tells the operator she believes her boyfriend, Jason Bayford, may still be alive because he was breathing when she left. Holly then gave the operator directions to the scene saying, quote, You go north on Greenwich. She then describes how the perpetrators made all of them kneel in front of the car. Holly begins to sob again but pulls herself together enough to tell the operator that the other suspect was thin and six feet tall. She said, quote, I saw a black leather coat. I don't know what else. Holly tells the operator, they weren't moving and they weren't breathing when I watched them, inaudible. Side of the head, inaudible. It was squirting out. When asked for her name, Holly replied, Holly Glover, and can you please call my mom? I'm 25. Holly is able to provide the operator with the address on Birchwood where all of them were when the perpetrators entered the house. She tells the operator the perpetrators broke into the house, stole their money, and she starts to tell the operator about a ring which belonged to Jason. Holly goes on to tell the operator, quote, but my head really fucking hurts, and the homeowner tells the operator they need an ambulance. First responders arrived shortly after the 911 call ended and transported Holly to the hospital. Incredibly, she survived. It was discovered that the barrette she put into her hair the night before actually saved her life. The bullet was deflected by the barrette with which she tied her hair back. The bullet fractured her skull, but didn't go into her brain because of the barrette. At the hospital, Holly gave police a description of the Carr brothers. An immediate be on the lookout, or bolo, was put out. Police and emergency personnel went to the soccer field and found Heather, Jason, Brad, and Aaron. Brad and Aaron appeared to still be breathing, but Heather and Jason had no pulse. Brad and Aaron were immediately rushed to the hospital, but both men died before the ambulances got there. Believing all five of their victims were dead, the Carr brothers went back to the home to ransack it one last time for valuables. They used Jason's truck to help transfer everything to Reginald's apartment. Before they left, they beat Holly's beloved dog, Nikki, to death with the golf club. When police officers Michael Dean and Sergeant John Hoofer arrived at the home a little after 3 a.m., they entered the house not knowing if the perpetrators were still there. The Carr brothers were gone. The officers found the house ransacked. Dresser drawers were pulled out. The beds had been stripped of covers. An entertainment center was missing a large TV and numerous other items were strewn all over the floor. They also found Nikki's body. As they went back outside to secure the house, Officer Dean noticed a white Plymouth drive by the house slowly. He thought it was odd because it was around 4 a.m. and in an area with little traffic. He wondered who would be on the road that early and why they would be driving by so slowly. He made sure to get a good look at the driver as the car passed the house. It was a black male, who looked straight ahead, never even glancing at the commotion in front of the house as the crime scene was being secured. Dean told this to Hoofer, who got into his patrol car and stopped the vehicle a couple blocks away. The driver gave him identification, listing his name as Reginald Carr. Carr told Sergeant Hoofer he was on his way to his girlfriend's house. With nothing to hold him, Hoofer let Reginald go. The suspects had not yet been identified by name. Christian Taylor, who lived in the same apartment complex where Reginald was staying with his girlfriend Stephanie, was watching the news before going to work. He saw the story about the quadruple murder. The report said police were looking for a gray or silver Dodge Dakota pickup. As Taylor left his apartment around 6.25 a.m., he saw a Dodge Dakota pickup parked right next to his own vehicle. Then he saw a man behind the truck, matching the description he had seen on the news. Taylor got into his car and drove straight to the police station to report what he had seen. The man was later identified as Reginald Carr. A short time later, another resident of the apartment complex, named Rira Obel Nosongalu, went out to start his car. He saw a man, later identified as Reginald Carr, trying to drag a large television on a blanket. This witness also noticed the Dodge Dakota with its tailgate down. He asked Reginald if he needed some help with the TV, but Reginald told him he could get it himself. Obel watched Reginald drag the TV to the door of Stephanie's apartment. When Stephanie opened the door, Obel heard her ask Reginald where he had been all night. Reginald told her that his sister had him move some things from her garage. He then made numerous trips from the truck into the apartment, carrying items that had been stolen from the Birchwood home. The police officer who was investigating Christian Taylor's report of the Dodge Dakota arrived at the apartment complex minutes after Reginald went inside the apartment. The officer ran the plate number of the Dakota and verified that it was the vehicle which belonged to Jason, one of the victims. The police officer also saw the comforter that Reginald had used to drag the TV into the apartment. The blanket was lying close to the door of Reginald's apartment. There was bedding and clothing that had been thrown over the fence right next to the pickup. Obel, who was leaving for work, saw the officer and told him about seeing Carr dragging the TV and pointed out which apartment he had gone into. The officer radioed the information in and backup arrived a few minutes later. When police knocked on the door, Stephanie answered. The police caught Reginald as he was trying to escape through a sliding glass door. When they searched Reginald, They found a gas card with Jason's name on it, Heather's watch, and $996, most of it in $20 bills. Inside the apartment was Brad's TV, Jason's checkbook, a garment bag, computer equipment which belonged to Aaron, a credit card which belonged to Holly, Brad's wallet, bank receipts showing withdrawals from Holly's bank account, a watch belonging to Andrew Schreiber, various tools, clothing jewelry, and travel bags belonging to the victims of the Birchwood residence. When Stephanie was questioned, she gave police a description of Jonathan's Honda. An all-points bulletin was put out on the car, and Jonathan was soon in handcuffs. Stephanie was not suspected of any involvement in or even having any knowledge of the crimes. Jonathan had called a friend of his and told her he was planning to take a trip to Cleveland but missed it, and he had nowhere to go. He asked if he could stay with her. The friend, Tronda Adams, said that he could. When Jonathan arrived at her apartment, he had a large amount of cash on him. He told Tronda that he had withdrawn all the money from his bank account because he had to leave town. Adams was suspicious because Jonathan was unemployed and was only visiting Wichita from his home in Dodge City. Later that morning, Adams' mother, Tony Green, was hanging up Jonathan's jacket, when she found a small jewelry box in one of the pockets. In it was the engagement ring Jason had bought for Holly. About an hour later, Tronda was watching the news and saw Reginald being arrested. She went downstairs to talk to Jonathan about what she had just seen. Tony also saw the news segment. She didn't recognize Reginald, but knew that Jonathan had been driving a white Plymouth, and that's when she realized he was involved in the quadruple murder. Tony called Tronda upstairs, and the two of them went to a neighbor's home to call the police. A few minutes later, police arrived at the apartment complex. When Jonathan saw them coming, he tried running away but was quickly apprehended. Along with the diamond ring, police found over $1,000 in cash on Jonathan. Tronda Adams would later identify the two guns used in the crimes, stating she had previously seen them in Jonathan's possession. Both Carr brothers were in custody less than 12 hours after committing their horrible crimes. I am such a jeans and t shirt kind of girl. I once asked a friend if I could slap some sequins on my jeans and call them formal enough to wear to her wedding. That didn't go over so well. I know a great pair of jeans when I find them, so let me tell you about my newest jeans obsession. Mott & Bow is a kick-ass jeans company that makes high-quality jeans in their own factory. And let me tell you, these jeans rock. I wore my Mott & Bow jeans to work this week and felt like I was wearing my favorite pair of yoga pants, only better. You know how a high-end pair of yoga pants suck you in in all the right places, but feel comfortable all day long? Yeah, that's what Mott & Bow jeans do. These jeans keep their shape for days, I know because I wear them several times each week without washing them. Don't judge me. Mott & Beau offers different styles and colors of jeans for women and men at such a fair price point. If you're unsure of which size to order, take advantage of Mott & Beau's home try-on program. Order two pairs of jeans, only pay for one, then return the pair that doesn't fit using the prepaid return label. Trust me, I am a total jeans snob and these have become my new go-to. If you're ready to fall in love with jeans, go to mottenbow.com and use promo code MURDERISH for 15% off for first-time buyers. That's M-O-T-T-A-N-D-B-O-W.com and use MURDERISH for 15% off. Although white supremacists to this day insist these were hate crimes, as the perpetrators were black and all of the victims were white, there is no evidence to suggest that any of the crimes committed by the Carr brothers were racially motivated. Before the Carr brothers' trial, a Nazi group rallied in Topeka, Kansas to protest. Investigators and the prosecution believed the Carr brothers chose all of their victims randomly and had no prior connections to any of them. All indications were that the Birchwood residence was chosen at random. This would appear to be supported by the Carr brothers questioning whether anyone else was in the house when they broke in. On March 19, 2001, while on cleanup detail, an inmate of the Winfield County Correctional Facility found a Lorsen three eighty caliber handgun lying on the ground on Kansas Highway 96 in Wichita. Ballistics would show that this was the gun used in the incidents involving Andrew Schreiber, Ann Walenta, and the five victims at Birchwood. Although Andrew had not been shot, three bullets from the gun were used to destroy a tire on his Ford Expedition. A casing found at the scene was determined to be from the Lorsen 380 handgun. Semen found on the dining room carpet of the Birchwood home matched Jonathan, as did samples from Holly's rape exam. A stain on Jonathan's shorts had Heather's DNA on it. Heather's blood was found on Reginald's underwear. Heather's DNA was also found on a white t-shirt found in Stephanie Donnelly's apartment. Other DNA samples collected from the victims matched one or both of the Carr brothers. When Reginald was examined later, officers saw genital warts on his penis. Hollywood later discovered that she had contracted HPV, which can cause genital warts. Bank account records showed 23 withdrawals or attempted withdrawals from the bank accounts of the five Birchwood victims between 11.54 p.m. on the night of the 14th and 11.21 a.m. on the morning of the 15th. On September 9, 2002, jury selection for the trial began. It would take almost three weeks until the jury was sworn in on October 2nd. The lengthy process was due in part to numerous objections from the defense teams of both Reginald and Jonathan to the court's failure to dismiss potential jurors. The trial began on Monday, October 7th of 2002. Both defendants were charged with numerous counts, including kidnapping, aggravated robbery, aggravated battery, and criminal damage to property for the crimes committed against Andrew Schreiber. For the crimes committed against Anne Walenta, they were charged with first-degree felony murder since she died after surgery. For the crimes committed against Holly Glover, Heather Mueller, Brad Haka, Jason Bayford, and Aaron Sander. The brothers were charged with eight counts of capital murder, two counts for each victim, for the deaths of Brad Haka, Jason Bayford, Aaron Sander, and Heather Mueller. Four of the counts were for the premeditated murders, and the additional four counts for the related sex crimes. They were also charged with one count of attempted first-degree murder of Holly Glover, five counts of aggravated kidnapping, nine counts of aggravated robbery, one count of aggravated burglary, 13 counts of rape, three counts of aggravated criminal sodomy, seven counts of attempted rape, one count of burglary, one count of theft, and one count of cruelty to animals for beating Holly's dog Nikki to death. In addition, Reginald Carr was charged with three counts of unlawful possession of a firearm. As a felon, he was not allowed to possess a gun. Reginald and Jonathan's defense teams argued that the brothers should be tried separately. They also filed three different motions for a change of venue, claiming there was no way their clients would get a fair trial in Wichita. Judge Paul Clark denied all of the defense motions. He said that because Reginald and Jonathan were being charged for the same crimes, there was no reason they should have separate trials. He also said he didn't want Holly to have to testify at two trials when she could give testimony about both defendants at one. Regarding the motions for change of venue, Judge Clark declared that the questioning process during their voir dire stage, or jury selection process, would be used to find a jury that could be fair and impartial. District Attorney Nola Falston would be the lead prosecutor. Nola was also the one who told Heather Mueller's parents about the murder of their daughter. Heather had once worked at the law firm of Nola's husband, Steve. The case against the Carr brothers was not lacking evidence. In fact, the evidence was overwhelming. In addition to the DNA evidence, the prosecution also presented shoe print evidence linking the Carr brothers to the scene at Birchwood Drive. Cigar ashes at the scene were also linked to the two brothers because partially smoked cigars were also found inside the white Plymouth they had been driving. Ballistics showed the 380 Lorson gun found on Reginald Carr was used during all of the crimes. The prosecution brought in piles of clothing belonging to the victims that investigators found in Reginald Carr's apartment. There was so much evidence, Judge Clark had to have prosecutors clear a path for the jurors to get by to leave the courtroom. Crime scene investigator Scott Pike went over every piece of evidence that the state had lugged into the courtroom, describing which item belonged to which witness and where it was recovered. On the witness stand, when asked what he had been thinking about while lying face down in the back seat, Andrew said he was sure he was going to be killed. He began sobbing, and attorneys for both defendants began to object. Judge Clark denied the objections and let Andrew continue. Andrew told the jury he said two prayers before being taken out of his SUV. He said, quote, The first request I made was that if this is my time to go, please make it quick. The second request I made in my prayer, that the people close in my life knew how much I loved them. Chief Medical Examiner for Sedgwick County, Mary Dudley, testified at trial regarding the conclusion she reached for the victim's cause of death. She testified that Ann Walenta died due to pulmonary embolism, complications from the gunshot wounds. Jason Bayford died from a gunshot wound to the back of the head. He had injuries on his legs, toes, and buttocks consistent with the raised edges of the golf club found at Birchwood Drive. Brad Haka died from a gunshot wound to the head. He also had injuries to his head and neck from blunt force trauma, consistent with the golf club. Aaron Saunder died from a gunshot wound to his head. The gun had been touching his head when he was shot. He had marks on his forehead consistent with being hit by a gun. He also had bruises on his legs that could have been from the golf club. Heather Muller also died from a contact gunshot wound to the head. Forensic nurse Diane Shun, who was a sexual assault nurse examiner, testified about Heather's injuries, which were consistent with rape. Dudley also testified that Nikki, Holly Schnauzer, had been beaten to death, probably also from the golf club. With the overwhelming amount of evidence against the Carr brothers, their respective teams of public defenders decided on the same strategy. They would each have their client blame the other one. The best hope for the strategy of pointing the finger at each other was that only one of the guns, the 380 Lorson, was fired in the crimes. Although there was no question that the brothers had used the murder weapon during the crimes, the prosecution could not prove which one of them had fired it. During opening arguments, John Velwachel, one of Reginald's defense lawyers, claimed that Jonathan Carr had committed all of the Birchwood Drive crimes with an unidentified third man. Wachell claimed that Reginald had been dropped off earlier in the evening by his brother and had gone to sell drugs in North Wichita. Mark Manna, one of Jonathan's defense attorneys, said Jonathan was not involved in the crimes against Andrew Schreiber and Ann Walenta. He said that even though Reginald had been identified as the perpetrator, it didn't mean that his brother Jonathan was also involved. As both brothers were unemployed, the money they had on them when they were caught had to be explained. Reginald's defense team put his girlfriend Stephanie on the stand. She testified that Reginald made money fighting his dog and selling drugs. Once the prosecution rested, Reginald's defense team claimed that after Jonathan and the unidentified third person had committed the crimes, Jonathan contacted Reginald, to have him store some of the stolen items in the apartment he shared with Stephanie. They said this was the reason the stolen items were found in Reginald's apartment. Jonathan's defense team claimed that Jonathan was at Tronda Adams' house on the morning of December 15th and that Reginald brought over cash and a diamond engagement ring. They said that Jonathan was unaware of the crimes his brother had just committed and that the Lorsen handgun belonged to Reginald. On Monday, November 4th, After almost 14 hours of deliberation, the jury had reached its verdict. For the first incident, against Andrew Schreiber, Reginald Carr was found guilty of one count of kidnapping, one count of aggravated robbery, one count of aggravated battery, and one count of damage to property. Jonathan Carr was acquitted on all four counts, as Andrew was unable to identify him as the second gunman. For the second incident, against Ann Walenta, the defendants were found guilty of one count of first-degree murder. For the third incident, against the victims at Birchwood Drive, the defendants were found guilty of eight counts of capital murder, one count of attempted first-degree murder, five counts of aggravated kidnapping, nine counts of aggravated robbery, one count of aggravated burglary, 13 counts of rape, three counts of aggravated criminal sodomy, seven counts of attempted rape, one count of burglary, one count of theft, and one count of cruelty to animals. In addition, Reginald was convicted on three counts of unlawful possession of a firearm. As the verdicts were read, neither defendant showed any emotion. As they were led out of the courtroom to their cells, Reginald stared directly at the family members of his victims, while Jonathan avoided any eye contact. The sentencing phase began the next day, Tuesday, November 5th, for the murders at Birchwood Drive on December 14th and 15th, Prosecutor Nola Faustin requested the death penalty for Reginald and Jonathan. The crimes committed against Andrew Schreiber and Ann Walenta were not eligible for the death penalty due to the lack of aggravating circumstances. Nola said there was no doubt as to who the perpetrators were and why they murdered. She said, quote, We know from the evidence they committed these crimes because they wanted to, because they chose to. As to whether the murders were premeditated, she said the Carr brothers wanted, quote, to leave no person behind to say what heinous, cruel things happened to them before they were executed. She thought the evidence presented at trial, particularly Holly's testimony, showed that aggravating circumstances, which were required for death penalty cases, were present. Nola told the jury that the evidence showed that aggravating factors existed from the actions of the defendants in that they purposely killed or created great risk of death to the five victims at Birchwood Drive. They committed the crimes for money and for items of monetary value. They committed the murders to prevent arrest and prosecution, and they committed the crimes in an especially heinous, atrocious, or cruel manner. Jay Greeno, one of Reginald's defense attorneys, said that his client had brain damage, and that he would show that childhood trauma caused him to act the way he did. Ron Evans, one of Jonathan's attorneys, continued to press his client's defense used at trial, saying that his client was not present for the Schreiber and Walenta crimes. He said that Reginald was a bad influence on Jonathan, and that any crimes his client committed were due to coercion from his older brother. He also told the jury about Jonathan's suicide attempts at age 7 and 16. Janice Harding, Reginald and Jonathan's mother, was called to tell the jury about both of her sons' childhood. She begged the jury to have mercy on her sons and not give them the death penalty. She said that Reginald and Jonathan were, quote, good people, and, quote, I know other families out there are probably going to hate me to death. I am sorry for them, but spare my children. I love them just as much as you would love your children. I believe there is good in them. There is just something went wrong along the way. She then addressed her two sons, saying, I don't know what went wrong, but I love you. I love you both. And I am sorry for everything that happened. If I did something wrong, I am sorry. I'd just like to say that I am sorry to everybody. I don't know if this is my fault. If it is, I am just sorry. Both defense teams asked for mercy in sentencing, telling the jury that their childhood problems and family dysfunction were to blame for their actions. The jury, however, were not persuaded. They sentenced both Reginald and Jonathan to death. The jury found, unanimously, that the prosecution proved beyond a reasonable doubt that aggravating circumstances were present and that these aggravating circumstances outweighed any mitigating circumstance presented by either defendant. They gave each brother four separate verdicts of death, one for each of the four victims they murdered on Birchwood Drive. They listed the aggravating factors that called for the death sentences as the rape and sodomy of the victims in addition to their murders and that the murders were premeditated. On Friday, November 15th of 2002, one day after Reginald's 25th birthday, both defendants were formally sentenced to death. While they were being led out of the courtroom, Jason Bayford's brother, Mark, cursed at Reginald and sarcastically wished him a happy birthday. Reginald cursed back at Mark. Along with the four death sentences, both defendants received a hard 20-to-life sentence, which meant no parole would be considered until they had served at least 20 years. For the remaining crimes, Reginald Carr received a total of 47 and a half years to be served consecutively with the 20-to-life sentence. Jonathan Carr received a total of 42 years in prison to be served consecutively to his 20-to-life sentence. In the state of Kansas, death penalty cases are immediately appealed to the state Supreme Court. The Carr brothers' defense team argued over 20 different areas where they believed Judge Clark erred in the trial court. The two strongest arguments were that the defendant's Eighth Amendment rights were violated when the trial judge ordered their sentencing trials be combined. They also argued that Judge Clark did not make it clear to the jury that mitigating circumstances in the sentencing phase only needed to be proved to the satisfaction of each individual juror and not beyond a reasonable doubt. After oral arguments for their appeals, on July 25, 2014, the Kansas State Supreme Court issued its ruling in a 6-to-1 decision. The court found 11 errors made by Judge Clark during the trial. Six of the errors were found to be harmless, negligible, or cured by the Supreme Court. The court ruled that none of the remaining five errors, individually, would be significant enough to affect the outcome of the trial itself, but that taken together were significant enough that the defendant's Eighth Amendment rights were violated. The five errors were refusing to sever the sentencing trials, rejecting the defense objection to a juror who ended up becoming jury foreperson, misapplying the third-party evidence rule and hearsay exceptions, excluding a defense expert witness who was to testify about eyewitness testimony and instructing the jury to consider the degree of certainty of an eyewitness to assess that witness's reliability. The court said that although the evidence of the defendant's guilt was overwhelming, their rights were violated in the sentencing phase because they were entitled to individual sentencing trials. In addition, the jury were not told that mitigating circumstances do not need to be proven beyond a reasonable doubt for consideration. Although the Carr brothers would remain in prison, the Kansas Supreme Court vacated their death sentences due to the jury instructions and the failure to sever their sentencing. Many of the citizens of Kansas, particularly in the Wichita area, responded to the state Supreme Court's ruling with what can only be described as outrage. Sam Brownback, the governor of Kansas, said the court's decision was proof that changes needed to be made regarding how justices are selected, although justices are actually appointed by the governor. After serving one year, Kansas Supreme Court justices go up for election for a six-year term and re-election after each six-year term thereafter. The state of Kansas was not done fighting. The state appealed the decision of the Kansas Supreme Court to the United States Supreme Court. Although the Carr brothers were convicted of state crimes, the death sentences were overturned by the Kansas Supreme Court based on U.S. constitutional errors, which allowed the U.S. Supreme Court the opportunity to review the case. On Wednesday, October 7, 2015, the U.S. Supreme Court began hearing oral arguments for the case of Reginald and Jonathan Carr. The two main issues argued were whether Judge Clark's jury instructions regarding mitigating evidence during the sentencing hearing for the defendants was clear enough that jurors would understand how to consider it. The other issue argued was whether Judge Clark erred in refusing to sever the sentencing so that each defendant would have their own individual hearing. On January twentieth, two thousand and sixteen, the U.S. Supreme Court rendered its decision in an eight-to-one ruling the court overturned the decision of the Kansas Supreme Court to vacate the death sentences for the defendants. The U.S. Supreme Court's reasoning was that the Eighth Amendment does not require juries in capital murder cases to be informed that mitigating circumstances do not need to be held to the standard as beyond a reasonable doubt. The court ruled that jury instructions from Judge Clark were clear that the aggravating factors must be proved beyond a reasonable doubt, and must outweigh any mitigating factors, but that mitigating factors only needed to exist to be considered. The court said that no reasonable juror would have thought by Judge Clark's jury instructions that the mitigating evidence must be proven beyond a reasonable doubt. The court said that the jury instructions repeatedly told the juries that they should consider any mitigating factors given by the defense. After the U.S. Supreme Court ruled on these issues, the case was sent back to the Kansas Supreme Court for resentencing, where their cases are currently being reviewed. Today, Reginald and Jonathan Carr are incarcerated at El Dorado Correctional Facility in Kansas, along with infamous serial killer Dennis Rader, better known as BTK. The brothers will remain in prison for the rest of their lives unless the state Supreme Court rules that their death sentences should be reinstated. Interestingly, the state of Kansas had not held an execution in almost 54 years. George York and James Latham, both hanged on June 22, 1965, were the last inmates to be executed in Kansas. Some of the victims' families worked toward projects to remember their loved ones. In 2001, Tanya Muller, Heather's sister, along with one of Heather's sorority sisters, Jill Heitkotter, set up Heather's camp. The camp was sponsored by the Envision organization and Heather's sorority, Delta Gamma. Heather's camp involves children in camping and outdoor activities such as music, arts and crafts, fishing, and swimming. St. Thomas Aquinas Catholic School, where Heather had taught, established an award in her name, the Heather Muller Love of Faith Award, which is given each year to a deserving 8th grader. Also in 2001, Brad Hake's family created the Brad Haka Memorial Golf Tournament at Colbert Hills Golf Course in Manhattan, Kansas. Colbert Hills was Brad's favorite golf course. The tournament annually funds three scholarships for students at Brad's alma mater, Kansas State University. The tournament honors Brad, who played golf at Dodge City High School and Garden City Community College. Jason Bayford's family and friends created the Jason Bayford Memorial Scholarship in his honor. It's available to high school students from three schools in the Pratt, Kansas area where Jason was from. The scholarship is granted to students who either have a 3.3 GPA or SAT ACT score of 21 or higher and are planning to attend community college or a four-year college in the state of Kansas. In 2003, during the fourth season of the TV show Law & Order Special Victims Unit, episode 20, entitled Dominance, is based on the crimes committed at Birchwood Drive. After all of this tragedy, there was a silver lining that arose. During the trial for the Carr brothers, Andrew Schreiber and Holly Glover were introduced and began spending time together. They eventually began a relationship and were married in 2004. They currently live in Shawnee, Kansas. Thank you for joining me on this episode of Murderish. I'd love to discuss this case with you. Head over to the Murderish Facebook discussion group where we can talk about this case with other like-minded people. You can also find me on Twitter at MurderishPod or on Instagram at MurderishPodcast. If you like this show, there are many ways you can support it. You can start by hitting the subscribe button in your favorite podcast app and tell a friend about Murderish. You can leave the show a positive rating and review in iTunes, which helps other people discover Murderish easier. Buying products and services advertised on the show is another way you can help. Make sure to use my special URL or promo code when you buy. This episode was brought to you by HelloFresh and Mott and & Bow. Interested in extra Murderish perks? Go to patreon.com murderish, where your monthly support could give you access to perks like bonus content, Murderish t-shirts, stickers, a shout-out on the podcast, discount codes at the merch store, and other cool stuff. If paying a monthly subscription isn't your thing, you can also send a one-time donation by going to paypal.me murderishpodcast. That's paypal.me murderishpodcast. Any and all support is appreciated and goes a long way to help keep the show going. Want to let the world know you're not a murderer, just murder-ish? Check out my online merch store at murderishpodcast.threadless.com. I have t-shirts, coffee mugs, and other swaggy stuff available. Email any comments or questions you have to murderishjamie at gmail.com. That's J A M I at gmail.com. Murderish is mixed and mastered by John Buchanis of Audio Editing Solutions. Music in this episode was composed by Nico of We Talk of Dreams, This episode was researched and written by murderish researcher Steve Field. As always, ishers, thank you for joining me on another episode of Murderish. And remember, listening to this podcast doesn't make you a murderer. It just means you're murder-ish.